Support comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to providing innovative treatment options for people living with cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about myelodysplastic syndromes with Dr. Amr Zaiden. Dr. Zaiden is an assistant professor of hematology at Yale School of Medicine, and Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine in hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Myelodysplastic syndrome is a lot of syllables. Uh, what the heck does that mean? So myelodysplastic syndromes are actually um, a group of diseases. It's not only one disease. And I should probably clarify from the get-go that it has been officially recognized as a forms of cancer. So many patients struggle for a long time getting different um, uh, information from different uh, healthcare providers about whether this is cancer or, or not. For a long time, it used to be called pre-leukemia, which now we understand based a lot on a lot of um, studies looking at the genetics of the disease that it's actually a form of cancer and it is a form of um, leukemia. The way I usually describe it to my patients is uh, a form of what we call bone marrow failure. So when we think about any organ in the body, when it fails, it basically it stops performing what it's supposed to do. And I tell them to think of the bone marrow as the factory that makes all the blood cells. And when that factory fails, you end up with low blood counts. Mm. That factory goes awry, so those uh, basically uh, employees in the factory are all doing the wrong function, and <laughs> all these cells come up uh, looking bad and looking abnormal. So this is the, the, the part of the myelodysplastic. So the dysplastic means that those cells look abnormal, and um, it's a form, you can think of it as a form of uh, most most of the time as a form of chronic leukemia, meaning that it can evolve, it can, uh, some patients can live with it for a long time, but some patients do progress to um, more aggressive forms of the disease. Hmm. So how would I know if I had this myelodysplastic syndrome? So I think the most common ways of uh, being uh, diagnosed with this form of cancer is usually include some nonspecific symptoms. And those are related to this bone marrow failure. So when, when the bone marrow stops making the red blood cells, patients can get anemia. They have symptoms of anemia, which include usually um, low strength, shortness of breath with walking, um, ge feeling generally of not being uh, well. Uh, symptoms of bleeding can occur when you have low platelets. Those are the small cells that help us, uh, help, helps, help our body to prevent bleeding. When those go low, some patients can have bleeding. Some patients can have recurrent infections from the low white cell count. Those are the soldiers that defend the body against the infection, so patients can have recurrent infection. However, with the advances in, uh, in medicine and in general and the wide use of um, routine blood work for many conditions, we are seeing more and more patients who present without any specific symptom but just low blood count. And the way we usually make the diagnosis is by doing a procedure called a bone marrow biopsy, um, which is a sample that we take 
basically from inside the bone, uh, usually from the low back, and this allows us to examine the cells under the microscope, study the genetic makeup of the cells, and then determine not only that the patient has myelodysplastic syndrome, but also understand more about what is the expected course and how is the patient likely to do over time. Hmm. So, uh, well, that's that's uh, a lot. So I, I've gone to my doctor. He's found that I have low blood counts or something like that. And uh, then I'm referred for a bone marrow test. Is that right? Correct. Uh-huh. And, and is that a, a big deal, this bone marrow test? It sounds kind of scary. It's actually, you know, each time I tell patients, it's it sounds, um, you know, it sounds worse than it is in in actuality. They tell me, well, did you have one? So I didn't have one. It's <laughs> it's it's difficult for me to say that for all patients, it's uh, a simple test. But I I would say for the vast majority of patients, it's an outpatient procedure. It's done usually with just local uh, numbing medication over the bone. And it usually takes less than half an hour for most patients. So for the, for the vast majority of patients, it's pretty straightforward. It doesn't cause, it's one of the safest procedures actually that we do in, in medicine because the, the, the risk of complications, uh, which generally could be either infection or bleeding are generally very low. And it's like any other procedure when it's done in places where uh, you do a lot of it, uh, Basically, the providers are more experienced. I think that usually improves uh, patient experience. So I would say for the vast majority of patients, quite straightforward. Some very few patients would require um, general sedation, basically, to to try to go through the procedure. But I would say for the most part, it's pretty straightforward. For our listeners, I've actually had a a bone marrow test, but but not the not the biopsy part, just a, an aspirate part. And I have to say that uh, while I wouldn't want to go through one every day, it was really a, a pretty much a, a snap. I would have to say because the uncomfortable part lasted I don't know about twenty seconds or something like that. Yeah, I would agree. I would, I would think that the most, I would say most of my patients who undergo it usually tell me this was way easier than it sounded when we described it. Yeah. So, um, right. So you, you do this bone marrow test and the pathologists help you make this diagnosis, I guess, and, and you find out um, some of this biological information that you're looking for. Then what happens? Yeah, so that's a great question. And it's actually uh, some of my uh, research in, in that area focus on understanding how we can translate not only the biologic uh, or what we call the morphologic features, how the cells look in the bone marrow into information that can help us guide the decision making for patients and how we counsel them about what to expect with the disease and what type of treatments to recommend. So it, uh, it's, it ha- this test has a wide ranging implications in, in what we do with the information. I think uh, w- one of the areas that is you know, uh, still um, we are understanding and um, doing more research and is how to best use this data to direct therap- decisions regarding therapies. So we have some information that we can get from the blood tests as well as the bone marrow biopsy. Um, we look at the basically at the type of uh, dysplasia, which as I mentioned, how many of those blood cells are affected by it and how badly they are affected. We look at the chromosomes within the cells, and we look at the blood counts. In addition to that, we look at the, um, more recently we discovered that even um, 
what we call genetic alterations at the level of the individual genes, those also can affect not only how the patients will do over time with the disease, but also they are opening the door for therapies that can directly uh, impact the disease, uh, what many people refer to as precision medicine, which is basically delivering specific therapy that are tailored to that patient particular disease. Hmm. So since uh, you're saying that this disease has these genetic features, does that mean it's an inherited disease? You, it runs in the family? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. It's one of the most common questions that come up when, when, when we have the first encounter with many of our patients. I would say for the vast majority of patients, uh, there is no specific reason why they developed it. And this is what we call idiopathic, which is a term that we often use in medicine when we have no idea what <laughs> a disease came from. In it sounds a, better than I don't know, right? Exactly. It's another word for actually I don't know. Usually we think of it as some kind of interaction between what we call genetic susceptibility, that your DNA makes you more susceptible to certain diseases, the same way some people can develop heart problems or lung problems, and then interaction with environmental factors. However, in a small subset of uh, patients, I would say um, around 20 percent to 30 percent of patients, they are usually identifiable factors, which usually either include previous cancers for which they have received chemotherapy or um, uh, radiation, and that can damage the bone marrow and over time can lead to the development of this disease. Sometimes patients can could have environmental exposures, which could include either some form of radiation uh, or, as you know, um, sometimes occupational exposures such as benzene exposure. Mm. Um, all of these can predisposed to the development of the disease. Some patients do have a genetic component um, in, in the sense that it's, it's inherited. However, this is, I would say this is a very uh, small minority of patients. Those are generally the ones who develop the disease at a younger age, and it tends to be associated usually with other organ um, uh, manifestations. Some patients have what we call skin manifestations or bony manifestations, and usually you have more than one member in the family affected. For most patients with MDS, it's usually one member in the family, and I usually assure, assure most of my patients that this is unlikely to affect their um, their children um, because most of the time, as I mentioned, it's not usually um, directly inherited. Hmm. So these abnormalities in the genes that you were talking about, they've been acquired uh, at some point after birth. Is that right? Correct. And actually, it has been extremely interesting era in, in, in science that not only that uh, we now understand that um, damage over time leads to uh, accumulation of these changes that eventually manifest as myelodysplastic syndrome or even other forms of blood cancer. But now we can even demonstrate that in many patients, they have some alterations even before they had any form of uh, recognizable disease. So this ha can happen over many years um, before the patient actually present uh, to the doctor. Hmm. Well, how, do, how would you find it then if they're just healthy people? So this was done basically in, in several ways. One of them was uh, when patients had uh, um, underwent different uh, studies looking at, for example, cardiovascular risk factors, which are diseases that occur in, you know, in the heart or other forms of large uh, um, um, registry databases in which they donated blood cells. And 
subsequent to that, a small group of these patients, you are talking here about a very large number of, of um, patients, and over a very long time, basically, some of them did develop myelodysplastic syndrome, and then the researchers went back to those stored cells and looked at them, and they found that many of these patients did have uh, some abnormalities that preceded that. In the same way, uh, it was demonstrated more recently that some patients who have one cancer and undergo radiation or chemotherapy, they had some cells collected at that time, and subsequent to that, when some of these patients did develop myelodysplastic syndrome, they went to the original samples, and again, they found some of these genetic alterations that has been associated with the development of myelodysplastic syndrome, which is, in my mind, is actually very interesting because it not only it opens the door for uh, trying to identify some of those patients who are likely to develop the disease over time, but also it might allow us to have opportunities at trying to intervene early on before even myelodysplastic syndromes clinically manifest so that in some way it's a preventive strategy which would be very important because as we will probably be talking later in, in, in the show, the treatment options for myelodysplastic syndromes are generally um, limited and therefore a preventive strategy if that is possible at all would be ideal. Hmm. Well, how good are the treatments that you have for uh, the set of diseases? Yeah, so the way we think about myelodysplastic syndromes in general is we use different um, tools um, in which we put the different clinical and genetic features of the patient to try to come up with what we call risk stratification. This is, you know, this is a big word, but what it essentially, uh, essentially means that we try to predict whether the patient is going to have um, uh, how their expected survival and their chance of progression to an acute form of leukemia over time. So when we think about that, we generally group the patients into two large groups. One of them is what we call lower risk, and the other group is higher risk patients. And the goals of therapy for these two groups, uh, two groups are very different because in lower risk patients, unfortunately so far we have not identified any uh, treatment that can prolong survival. So our focus in general is to improve the quality of life or maintain it and to try to reduce the transfusion needs and uh, generally these patients if you lump them together on average they live around uh, somewhere between three to seven years depending on the specific group but this is what we call a median number so each time i tell a patient about these numbers i always tell them that this is the number at which half of the patients are expected to survive, but there are patients who live much longer, there are patients who live much shorter. Uh, well, that's really very interesting and a, and a little bit sobering if, uh, if that's the survival of the better risk patients. Uh, we'll pick this up after our uh, break, but right now we need to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about the interesting uh, cancer called myelodysplastic syndrome with Dr. Amr Zaiden. Support comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about genetic testing, which can be useful for people with certain types of cancer that seem to run in their families. Patients that are considered at risk receive genetic counseling and testing so informed medical decisions can be based on their own personal risk assessment. 
Resources for genetic counseling and testing are available at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers. Interdisciplinary teams include geneticists, genetic counselors, physicians, and nurses who work together to provide risk assessment and steps to prevent the development of cancer. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Amr Zaiden. We've been discussing a group of bone marrow disorders known as myelodysplastic syndrome. Uh, Amr, uh, before the break, you were mentioning that you um, look at various features of the patient's blood counts and bone marrow features and biological studies you've gotten, and you've... you've um, classified them in, into either a lower risk group of patients where you don't feel, as I understand it, that, that the treatments improve survival, but they're, um, they're aimed at improving blood counts and quality of life. Do I, do I have that right? Correct, yes. Uh, well, what about the other group, which I guess would be higher risk, huh? Yes, that's correct. So around two-thirds of the patients are belong to the lower-risk group, and around one-third of the patients belong to the higher-risk group. However, we have to keep in mind that this is uh, what we call a dynamic scoring. So some of these lower-risk patients over time can progress, and they can become a higher-risk group. So when we think about the higher-risk group in general, those are the patients who do the worst when they have this form, and this is uh, patients in whom the disease really um, uh, almost behaves like a form of acute leukemia in some patients in the sense that the survival without intervention is quite limited. Actually, studies have shown that without active treatment, meaning without treatment that specifically targets the disease, um, the survival of those patients could be limited to less than a year. And this oh, is, wow. Yeah. It's, it's, and this is, again, part of why and, uh, I think it's very important to get the message out in the community that myelodysplastic syndromes are real cancer. They should be identified and they should be adequately treated when, when, when possible. For a long time, there was this nihilistic approach about diagnostic diagnosing myelodysplastic syndromes because we didn't mention that, but most patients with myelodysplastic syndrome are actually older patients. So the median age, basically the age at which most patients present is in the mid-70s. And mm. many um, physicians use not even to perform these bone marrow biopsies on those older patients because they were saying, well, we don't, for a long time, we didn't have any good therapy. So why should I bother with getting a bone marrow biopsy? Mm. And that definitely... Um, affected the outcome of some of these patients because I do think currently we have some good therapies and um, I think we should really try to diagnose the disease in most of older patients who have anemia because anemia is always a manifestation or a result of something else. Anemia is not a, a disease by itself in the sense of being a disease. It's usually the result of another process and I think trying to identify that process whether it's a form of bleeding from uh, from the gut or is it some other um, a form of blood cancer is very important because this is how you make the th the decisions about the therapies. So it's it's not normal for older patients to just become anemic because they're older. Correct, and that's actually a very important message that even some. I think a lot of patients seem to think, well, I've always been anemic. You hear that a lot, right? Correct. And even some physicians actually, in my experience, uh, assume that as you get older, you're supposed to get anemic or it's not unusual to be anemic. In my experience, if you dig enough, 
almost most patients will have some identifiable and very often correctable factor uh, underlying their their anemia. And again, anemia for some patients might not be uh, producing a lot of symptoms when they come to you. But I can tell you many of my patients who didn't think they have a lot of symptoms once you fix their anemia. You know, they said, well, well, I was like really having symptoms. I just I didn't uh, realize that I was feeling so tired. And now I feel more energetic and more fresh and all of that. So I think some (laughs) of that can definitely be underestimated by not only the physician, but uh, but by their patients as well. I'm reminded that when I first got glasses, eyeglasses at the age of 40, and I didn't have a a big prescription, uh, but I had some astigmatism and I hadn't really realized uh, how out of focus all the trees were that I couldn't really see the individual leaves. And all of a sudden I was like looking in three dimensions, you know, uh, with a minor kind of rather minor Im- improvement, but because uh, you don't know, you don't know how out of whack you are until you become normal, right? Yeah. And I think that's important for the patients to realize, because I think even if, if your primary care physician or, you know, whoever physician you are talking to kind of, uh, you know, plays the anemia away, I think at least there should be some kind of investigation into the cause of it. And uh, ultimately, there should be some consideration of sending the patient to a blood doctor if the cause of the anemia, especially in older patients, is identified. Because again, having anemia is not a normal part of aging. So I think that's important to get out. So for those patients who get diagnosed with higher risk MDS, um, you know, those higher risk group, the treatment options for a very long time have been quite limited. They only included basically going for a bone marrow transplantation, which um, can lead to cure in some patients. However, as any as a form of transplantation, it's it's quite a, a, a risky procedure because those patients, as we mentioned, most of them are older. They often have other uh, diseases in their lungs and their hearts, and they generally don't. Only a few of those patients would tolerate bone marrow transplantation uh, very well, and it always comes to my mind because you know each time we I write a paper or anybody quotes um, research about myelodysplastic syndromes, they always talk about how bone marrow transplantation is the only way to treat it, but. Part of our um, research effort has been actually trying to see how often do we perform transplant on those patients. And what we found is that among older patients who are the ones who are uh, mostly affected with this disease, less than 5%, and I would say less than even 2% of patients uh, with high-risk MDS do undergo bone marrow transplantation. and that 2% when that's the curative therapy? Yes, and uh, it's, I mean, it's shocking to me that how many, uh, you know, how this gets emphasized all the time. I think it's very important to think about it, but in realist, you know, in realistic terms, it's mostly used for the lower, uh, for the younger patients, for the patients who are in, in, in good shape, but for the vast majority of patients with myelodysplastic syndromes, um, it's something either that is not recommended because of their age and because of their other problems, or because they uh, sometimes they cannot identify a donor despite all the advances in identifying donors and sources of blood um, or bone marrow stem cell transplants these days. But sometimes uh, the patient himself, when, when when they are you know counseled about the possible side effects and all of that, they refuse it. So I would say the vast majority of patients don't undergo this bone marrow transplantation, and that leaves most of these patients being treated on what we call. Um, palliative measures. So what we are trying to do is extend their survival uh, and try to, again, improve their quality of life by uh, 
reducing their needs for transfusions. So the most active form that of therapy currently used for those patients are a group of drugs called hypomethylating agents. Um, there are two of them that are approved in the U.S. One of them is called azacitidine, and the other one is called decitabine. Those drugs uh, have been shown to improve the quality of life and to reduce the transfusion needs and to halt the progression to acute leukemia in some patients with myelodysplastic syndromes. Um, large randomized studies, which are our best evidence in medicine in general, have shown that only azacitidine prolonged survival in patients with MDS. However, again, you know, it's one of the... Um, one of the features uh, that I think gets highlighted all the time about how azacitidine changed the landscape of of uh, myelodysplastic syndromes. While I think it's a very good drug because definitely some patients do respond to it and um, some patients can have prolonged remissions on the, on the disease, uh, if you look at the numbers, only less than 15% achieve the ideal response, which what we call complete response. Less than half of the patients achieve any kind of response, meaning that more than half of the patients do not achieve a response. And we have no real way of identifying which patients are going to respond or not. And this therapy usually takes several months to fully result in benefits, which means that for many patients, you are keeping them on months of therapy that is not going to work. And this therapy doesn't usually hold the patient for a long time. If you look at most patients, usually even if they respond, the small group of patients who respond don't usually have a response that lasts more than uh, generally 12 to 15 months. And um, the survival, if you look at the group of the patient, the survival prolongation is really um, nine months if you look at the two groups of patients who received azacitidine versus those who received what we call conventional care, which are, you know, the other things we used to do before we had hypomethylating agents available. So a lot of my research is focusing on how we can improve the outcome of these patients. Again, uh, part of my outcomes research, basically, which is the type of research we look at the real life uh, setting to see how these therapies work in real life. If you think about clinical trials, we are choosing the, the athletes of the patients, the most, uh, the, the strongest the patients who are able to pass a very stringent list of qualification to go into trial, which do not really uh, uh, match most of what we see in the clinic. And when we look at the benefit of hypomethylating agents among patients in the real life setting using large databases, we find that these drugs significantly underperform. And we presented some of that research actually in the last American Society of Hematology meeting, which by we showed that um, not only that the median survival uh, or basically the average survival if you put all these trials together is less than the two years that was reported in the largest trial. Um, but a lower percentage of patients have any kind of sustained response over time. So I do think that the way going forward is to continue um, to improve uh, uh, outcomes of patients by trying to get them onto clinical trials. I think we have a, a good therapy with azacitidine and decitabine, but I think it's very important that we continue to try to improve those therapies because there are significant um, issues currently with them. Hmm. So how does one do that? Like, what do you do when you've got your best drug is 
affecting maybe 40 or 50 percent and as you pointed out underperforming potentially outside of the strict uh, confines of a clinical trial what kinds of things are exciting to you in clinical research i, I know you mentioned you were just uh, presenting at this uh, international meeting is there anything exciting going on yeah, so that's uh, that's a great question. You know, for a, for a long time, many of the blood cancers were traditionally treated with what we call chemo chemotherapies. When you talk to most patients about cancer in general, the word chemotherapy comes to their mind. Uh, you know, nausea, hair loss; these are the things that usually come to their sure. mind. But I think oncology has been changing in amazing ways in the last 10 to 15 years. We have a lot of focus on what in two big groups of therapies currently. One of them is called targeted therapies, and the other group is called immunotherapies. So those don't give you the traditional chemotherapy side effects such as nausea and hair loss um, and significant organ damage. Those work generally by two big uh, mechanisms. So the targeted therapies are small molecules or small um, uh, basically uh, agent drugs that are designed to attack a specific alteration in the myelodysplastic syndromes. For example, in acute myeloid leukemia, which is a related disorder, we have two of these agents that are in advanced uh, clinical development. One of them is uh, are called FLT3, FLT3, and the other one is called IDH1 and 2. So those and those genetic alterations uh, lead to changes that uh, subsequently cause the disease, and we have specific drugs that inhibit them. This is an acute myeloid leukemia, so those abnormalities happen in a small subset of patients, and we currently have trials that combine drugs, oral drugs that inhibit these specific uh, alterations, and we have trials um, where we combine these drugs with azacitidine. So I think the platform that I generally think is the best in, is to combine azacitidine with another drug. In addition to the targeted therapies, we have the immunotherapies, which is an area of special interest of mine. So immunotherapies, many people think of the immune system as a way of defense against infections, but the immune system is actually our most efficient way of defending against cancer. The reason why cancer develops in most patients is because the immune system at one point stops recognizing these abnormal cells. So in our DNA, damage happens every day. The cells take care of it. If the cell becomes abnormal, the immune system would take care of it. At one point, the immune system stops recognizing the damaged cell, and that damaged cell can proliferate and become a cancer. And there has been a lot of research on why does that happen and how we can stimulate the immune system. The commonly used uh, term is like um, uh, basically removing the brakes on the immune system so that it attacks the cancer cells. This has been done by several mechanisms, and it's already showing amazing results in uh, solid tumors such as skin cancers, melanoma, and lung cancer. And we are trying to do the same thing in blood cancers. We've already some, seen some good results with those group of drugs. The first set of drugs that came were called immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, and they have resulted in, in amazing, I would say, amazing results in solid tumors uh, in some blood cancers, such as a form of lymphoma called Hodgkin's lymphoma. And we're, currently we are um, doing that in our patients with uh, myelodysplastic syndrome, combining these drugs with hypomethylating agents along with other forms of immunotherapy. Dr. Amr Zaiden is an assistant professor of hematology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu. 
and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.